You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. And welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Chuck and Rachel. Um, Chuck, it's been a while since we've had you on here because of a ton of travel. So I wanted to check in about all of that. But first of all, um, how was your weekend? Did you get to do anything that was not strong town related? <laughs> well, I, I didn't get home until late Saturday night, so not much of a not much of a weekend. Um, just you know, uh, one day. But we we actually had a block party this weekend. And last year I was traveling on the the weekend of the block party, so I missed it last year. But this this time I got to go, and it was great. How about you? I had a good weekend. What did I do? Oh, uh, went out on our friend's sailboat for a little bit, oh. embracing the unseasonably warm weather. So that was yeah. fun. Um, yeah, nothing nothing too big. Warm there? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I mean... It's not like hot, but it's like, it was like in the seventies, oh. uh, which is perfect. Yeah. I think we got up to like, like low sixties yesterday. So we're, we're getting, we're getting the chill in the air. We haven't turned the heater on yet. It's kind of a source of pride. Like how long can you go without the turning the heater on and, well, uh, and save the money. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a cheap, it's a being cheap too, but uh, it's one of those things where. Like, you know, I got down to 45 last night. We don't need a heater yet. <laughs> it's, it's good. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I, you know, it, I think it's when it, when it doesn't get above 50 during the day, then like everybody starts to be crabby and like, okay, it's, it's a little chilly in here. Let's, let's do something. But I mean, you keep the, you keep the, the windows closed and, uh, the sun heats up the house. I mean, it's warmer inside than it is outside, even without, um, you know, the heater on. So, yeah. So I wanted to rapid fire review all the events that you've been to over the past couple of weeks. Um, I feel like with, I feel like we need to do like a two hour podcast on the events because I, I had well, an amazing yeah. stretch of places, really astounding. So go ahead. Last we left off, you were heading to Spearfish, South Dakota. Oh my gosh, um, going you, that far? That back? was a while ago. <laughs> if you remember, how did seriously that we go? haven't talked since then? I don't think so. Oh my goodness. It's fun being out there. I mean, I, I love the western side of South Dakota, the Black Hills region. It was a, a group of planners. So it was like a, uh, uh, I, I don't know what they called it, like a Mountain West, uh, you know, collection of planners. They had people from from Arizona and Colorado mm -hmm. and all over the Dakotas that were there. And uh, yeah, it went really well. It was a fun, it, it was a, it was a fun deal. And, you know, whenever you get a technical audience like that, they ask a different set of questions. They have a different set of concerns. And I hadn't done one like that for quite a while. And it was it was fun. Those are often my most skeptical uh, audiences, you know, the right. ones that are kind of rooted in the way we do things today. And I, I think the the insights are more jarring to them. I mean, it's yeah. the old Upton Sinclair quote. You, you It's hard to get someone to change their mind about something when their job depends on them not changing their mind. Yeah. But uh, the reaction was great. I mean, they were really, really into it and uh, asked good questions. And um, I, I had a breakout session that was standing room only. So it was, that was pretty cool. And your next event was in Santa Ana, California. And this I one... think I went to, I went to Akron first. Oh yeah. I didn't know if we were going to talk about that. Cause I thought that oh, was yeah. some, some private meetings and stuff. 
but no, we did a, we did a, yeah, we did a little bit of other meetings. Um, we did some stuff with some, a group. I, I, I went to Akron and let me just say about Akron. Um, here's a place, uh, you know, uh, outside of Cleveland has a lot of the same characteristics as the, uh, the typical, uh, kind of Lake belt, rust belt kind of place. Um, home of the Goodyear tire and, uh, a bunch of other tire manufacturers from Akron. And they've kind of, their, their fortunes have kind of dictated the fortunes of that city, um, which, you know, at one point in the past, tons of employment, uh, lots of jobs, lots of related industry. Now, not so much. And a lot of it is located, you know, way out on the edge in these office park kind of buildings that are kind of walled off from everything else. It's a, it's a place that has a, a lot of struggles. But as we were there, oh my gosh, um, just meeting people and being able to chat with people in these neighborhoods was spectacular. Um, we met a guy from Bhutan and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to admit that I did not know where Bhutan is. It's near Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a refugee. Uh, there's a Bhutanese population in this one neighborhood. Uh, and this gentleman was a, a refugee, moved here, uh, you know, lived in the mountains of Tibet, like fleeing his country, was able to come here, settled in Akron, wow. realized that the people in his community needed a certain type of food. And, and I'm, I'm ignorant of what Bhutanese food is, but for cultural or religious pre- pre- reasons or whatever, could not get this food in Akron. Mm-hmm. And so he started driving to Cleveland to get like truckloads of this food and come back and then sell it to his, mm-hmm. his community wound up starting a grocery store. And I got a tour of his grocery store. It's huge. Um, is one of these things where, again, the incremental, uh, amongst like people who are upstarts is over. It was just fantastic. And I, I, it was such a beautiful story because literally it's a person who started with nothing. Yeah. And now his grocery store has grown to be, this very big kind of neighborhood grocer and he's so, he's been so successful at it he actually is able to not only pay for the building but buy a house and uh kind of upgrade his life a little bit and i'm like this is cool. this is like the quintessential american story yeah so it, it akron is full of things like that and full of potential and it's, it's just a really kind of exciting place so next was Santa Ana, California, where you were part of a regional active transportation forum. Uh, tell me about that one. We were kind of excited about this one because we heard that uh, Santa Ana might be a pretty interesting city before we really excited. Yeah. yeah. And I know we've got some stuff from Johnny running today. Yes. Uh, Johnny Sanfilippo was gracious enough to come down and be like an extra set of eyes on that whole thing. Um, and, and we, I, I was so happy he could do that because he has such a fascinating take on, on, on that type of city. Not um, to mention we, he's also a gifted photographer. Oh yeah. He was great. Um, so Santa Ana, we were very excited about it because it, it is, it, it, they, they said this many, many times and I'm going to take it as fact, even though I've not independently, uh, verified it. I, I think it's true. They said it's the fourth densest city in all the United States. It has I, a fourth I highest density. verified it. Yeah. You did. Okay. I, I don't know what the top three would be, but I'm assuming we're like New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Yeah. Something um, like that. Yeah. So, you know, Santa Ana right there. Here's the fascinating thing about Santa Ana. I, I don't think I saw a building taller than four stories. 
Um, I didn't go to every part of the city, and there might be buildings taller than four stories, but there's certainly no like cluster of skyscrapers or anything like that. This is density like the old-fashioned way, right? Mm-hmm. These are you know people living together uh, in tight communities, and there's a lot about it that was really uh, I, I think we're gonna Johnny's gonna write a, a bunch of things, and then him and I are gonna chat. I hope on a podcast. At least I, I floated that idea to him, and he didn't seem to swat it away. <laughs> I think there's a lot of fascinating things under the hood in Santa Ana that are worth exploring. I'll, I'll give you two right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, Santa Ana sits in between uh, an area where affluent people tend to live and people where affluent people tend to work. It's in Orange County. Santa Ana tends to be like the drive-through community. And in fact, Caltrans uh, gives them extra money uh, if they are willing to, and, and these are, this is my way of describing it, turn their local streets into like highways. So the highway is too congested. Uh, for people that want to get off on the highway and speed through the neighborhood, if you configure your neighborhood to function like a highway, we will give you extra transportation dollars. Wow. Um, yeah. This has created just That's all kinds of problems in a city where a really high percentage of people do not own cars and a really high percentage of people walk and bike to everything. And so they've had this epidemic of people getting killed. Uh, You know, you have speeding traffic with complex urban environment of high density, uh, high rate of fatalities, uh, high rate of injury from from for people biking and walking. They've gone out and done some really interesting things. They've, uh, you know, on a low, low budget kind of environment, uh, gone out and experimented with uh, just putting things in the center of the street to slow things down. Uh, doing bump outs and different different type of traffic calming things to make their neighborhoods a little bit better. And you can see in the places where they've done it, uh, where things are a lot better. They, they, they function better. They feel better. The environment just works better. Um, and in the places where they, they haven't, and we spent plenty of time in those too, they really go high on that despotic scale, mm-hmm. um, just in a really sad way. So they have uh, this interesting cultural thing going on where you have a, a lot of people, many of them, uh, you know, first generation, uh, second generation Americans, uh, many of them Hispanic, uh, living in ways that I think uh, traditional Americans lived, right? Um, you know, one household with uh, not only mom and dad and two kids, but grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles and cousins and people living under one roof because, you know what, that's how people lived for Thousands and thousands of years. Um, they're still doing that here in Santa Ana. And there's a lot of tension that comes with that. Um, but there's also a lot of, of beauty and strength that comes with it. And I just, I found the place to be really, uh, really inspiring in many ways. So, yeah, we're going to delve into Santa Ana more in the coming weeks because I, I think we're going to have the council member on. Um, yeah, Michelle, Michelle Martinez. Martinez. I got that set up, so we'll be. She's the one who kind of arranged this whole uh, event, or at least having strong talents come to it. So yeah, she'll be on the she's podcast an, later. Amazing mover and shaker. Yep. Cool. Uh, and then we're gonna chat with Johnny and look, read some of the stuff that he writes, which I, I have. He, he kind of warned me that I might not like all of it, so I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's fine, Johnny. I was, I always find his stuff to be, you know, worthy of our, our time to listen to. So uh, we'll we'll see. 
So the next event that you went to, which was just last week, uh, was Pensacola, Florida. And this is one I definitely want to hear about. Um, this was organized by a member who's really enthusiastic about strong towns. And just, is this right that he, he just arranged this event of his own accord? It wasn't like, uh, you know, a government sponsored thing or a conference or anything. (laughs) Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. This is a special, that's kind of a special aspect of this. I'm from Minnesota. So anything in Florida is magical to me (laughs) because it's warm all year round. (laughs) I always just assume yeah, it's well. This is not. This is way up on the oh, the okay. Panhandle. Um, it's like six and a half or seven hours. I did not make a trip down to DC during that that epic uh, three weeks of travel. It's a place that has all the things you would think of in like an ocean community. Um, you know, it's got expensive homes. It's got uh, kind of a nice walkable part of downtown. Um, it's got wealthy people, you know, it's a nice, it's a nice place. It also has all the things that a a struggling city has. It has lots of neighborhoods of blight, lots of neighborhoods of disadvantaged people. Uh, It has, um, you know, parts of the city that are really struggling badly. And on top of it all, uh, they are getting uh, over the course of a a number of years, a billion dollars from BP oil spill settlement money. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to look at their project list. It, it, you know, they're looking to just build a bunch of stuff that is going to, you know, sink them deeper into, into decline. It's really sad. Oh, just, you know, the typical highway frontage roads, extend pipe, build interchanges, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just like taking everything in your community that clearly is not working and then, you know, doing way more of that. That's essentially what, you know, that, that's what they're they're proposing to do with it. They're throwing some little, you know, let's put some trails in, let's do some parks. You know, there's some things like that. Um, and I talked to a number of people who said, well, Chuck, what about the park? And I'm like, well, you, you're not maintaining the parks you have now. You know, it's not clear to me how adding a new park is going to make that better. Um, you know, even if it's a great park, like tell me what park you're not going to maintain or tell me how you're going to raise revenue to, to start maintaining them well. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a there's a cognitive dissonance there, very similar to what we find in other communities around the country. What's different is that uh, you have a, a a community benefactor. I think is the way to maybe maybe say it. Uh, there's a there's a gentleman named Quint Studer. He ran the Studer Group, which was a consulting company that worked in the in the healthcare profession for many years. Uh, he lives in Pensacola. He sold his company, retired, and set up a community foundation and is now working to try to, to make things better. He really likes strong towns. I, I'm flattered by that because here's a, a very successful person who has looked at our stuff and said, this is a big part of the answer. And he wanted to do what we're trying to do here, but on a local level. He wanted to change the conversation in Pensacola. And he said, we're going to have a, a year-long thing. We're going to call it Civic Con. We're going to invite uh, speakers uh, who deal with urban development uh, issues to come to town and, and talk to us and help us kind of shift our conversation, our way of, of talking about these things. The newspaper is on board. So it's uh, the, the Pensacola Journal News, I think is the name of it. Um, news journal. I, I, I met with them. They had like someone who followed me around the whole time, practically, mm-hmm. uh, took a ton of photos. We did a podcast with them. 
uh, great support from the newspaper. Mm-hmm. But they want me to come in three months before their kickoff of this and, and get things started. So uh, we had, I gave two presentations. One was uh, to a group of Ah, I just to use Chris Arnotti's term, the front row people, you know, it was a group of like connected government people, policy people, chamber of commerce, business leaders like the, you know, and uh, I did a a kind of a technical presentation with them. And then uh, in the evening, I did a curbside chat and they had an auditorium and we packed it. I mean, they had a capacity of 450 people and they uh, had a waiting list for people to get in. So it was, yeah, it was spectacular and it was uh, a lot of enthusiasm. And and I've been on the road ever, I left Pensacola and I was still on the road the rest of the week and I was just overwhelmed with the the buzz, the conversation, the number of people connecting to us, uh, the the stuff in the newspaper, it's ongoing yet today. So it's, uh, that was incredibly successful and I'm really... Pensacola is another place we need to kind of go into depth on because there's a lot of little stories there of buildings being resurrected uh, from the dead, you know, places people had walked away from coming back with a little nudge and and a little bit of investment. Uh, People who are on the margins uh, being brought front and center in some of these projects. And and, and really, uh, from a strong towns perspective, there's a lot of great incremental stuff going on there right now. That just needs its props, you know, just needs to be respected. Uh, I, I found it to be a intoxicating experience. And I, I, I they've said they want to have me come back. I, I'm there. Like, I can't wait. It's going to be it's going to be great. Awesome. And the last event that we uh, should talk about was you were in Holland, Michigan, uh, just this last Saturday for a Front Porch Republic conference. Um, what did that entail? Yeah. The, the Front Porch Republic uh, group ha- have been like intersecting. The Venn diagram with Strong Towns and them has a lot of overlap. And, you know, I had Grace Potts and Elias Krim on the podcast earlier this year. Uh, they, had, they had reached out to me. And they, they, these are like really good people, good friends um, who have over the years, and I mean way before Strong Towns was a thing that people knew about, uh, in the very early days, they would nudge me in certain directions like, hey, Chuck, uh, heard what you said, thought this was really smart. You might want to consider this, which is like taking it to the next step or the next step beyond that. And they've done that for a long time. And I, I really like them. I, I like the group of them. I like how they think. I, I think you would categorize them as as localists mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in kind of the pure sense, like what can we do here locally? Uh, localism is important. And. So the, the, the conference, and I stayed for as much as I could, almost the whole thing. I, I had to leave a little bit early to catch my plane. But the, the, the conference was all of us in one room, and they went through uh, – the, the theme this year was professions. What can professions do to help us advance uh, the, the idea of localism? Mm-hmm. And we heard from psychologists. We heard from professors, stay-at-home moms. Um, we heard just this like broad cross section of people, mm-hmm. uh, who talked about, you know, their profession, their undertaking, the thing they do and how, uh, you know, living in a community, living with neighbors, shopping locally, being part of a place, having deep roots in a place, um, why that matters to them and, and why it, it's important in this world. 
and you know, as one of kind of the end of a very long stretch of being gone from my place and, you know, feeling kind of disconnected a little bit from, from my family, from my house, from my home, mm-hmm. from my community. It was a, it was a really kind of beautiful way to end this time on the road, uh, to, to hear this and, and be connected to these friends of mine from long past and, uh, you know, just to spend some time with them. It was, it was wonderful. Uh, Front Porch Republic, you can find them uh, online and uh, and on Facebook. And if you're interested in the localism conversation, uh, there's a bunch of really smart people there that would be great for you to, to plug into. So thankfully, um, this week, you're, uh, you're chilling, you're in the office, able to catch up on stuff. And then <laughs> the following week, uh, you're headed to Yale and NYU. So we'll, we'll talk more about those ones uh, on next week's podcast, but... Thanks cool. for the recap. Yeah. Um, that was good for me to hear, too, because I haven't heard all those details yet. It's so exhausting when you're on the road. Um, I believe it. I mean, it really, like, I had a lot of 6 a.m. flights. I had one, I did spend, I'd said I hadn't made it to Disney World, uh, which is a slight, like, for non-Disney people, a slight nuance, because I did make it to Disneyland <laughs> for a day. I never keep um, those straight. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. In California, I had a I had a time where I, like I could have taken a flight and gotten home, um, but I wouldn't have gotten home till like my family was in bed. So uh, I'm like, I'm just going to take the midnight flight, which is what I did. Mm-hmm. So I took a red eye overnight, um, and got home then, uh, and spent you know the the bulk of that day at Disneyland, and it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, but um, it was a lot of those kind of things where. My flights were 6 a.m., which means I have to leave the house at like 2 a.m., uh, or overnight flights or like this, like weird hours, and it was exhausting. So I, I actually last week, one night, uh, slept 12 and a half hours. I went to bed at 10, and I woke up at 10.30 the next day. So, yeah, well, that happens. Hopefully this week is a tad bit more restful. I know you probably have a lot yeah. to catch up on. but Now back to normal. It'll be good. Uh, today you published an article called Rules for the Uncomfortable, uh, and it was referencing back to a couple of different um, stories, news stories that we have written about or reposted on social media about um, professionals getting called out for not having the correct licensure. Uh, and, you know, in one example, it was this guy in Oregon who was an electrical engineer, um, but wasn't technically a civil engineer. And he made some statements about how the, the traffic lights were poorly timed and got fined for that because he's not technically licensed as a civil engineer. And then in this most recent one that we shared on social media last week, it was a guy who was, I think, trained as an architect, but didn't technically have an architecture license and was you know, doing architecture and, and is now potentially going to jail for this. He's signed plans. He's going to prison for two yeah. years at least. Like not getting a fine. He's going to the like the big house, right? Yeah. I tried to frame what I hoped was the thrust of the article with that conversation about licensure, mm-hmm. because I, I think it's a there's a gray area there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on one hand, licensure protects the public because it ensures that competent people are doing the work. On the other hand, licensure hurts the public because it limits the uh, the access to these professions, to this type of design. It increases the costs. Yeah. Um, you know, it 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 limits uh, it limits access basically. And what which one is the more important benefit to the public? It's and easy is for there a or- middle ground. 
Well, yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, like we don't want buildings falling down on people. Of course. Right, right. But on the other hand, you know, it's fairly easy for a, a, a group of architects or engineers or building officials or what have you uh, to make the case that like their thing is critically important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anything that removes the kind of privileged status that they have in the system uh, is an attack on, you know, order and decency and, you know, sticking up for the weak and vulnerable and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. As I'm traveling around and I'm, I talked to I talked to so many people the last couple of weeks in Akron, uh, in Pensacola, in Santa Ana. Um, I got a, a day in Detroit uh, last week with uh, Alec Alsop, one of our members. Uh, we, we were able to, to tour some of the neighborhoods there. And, you know, you, you, you talk to people and you realize that there's a lot of places that are really struggling. And when people talk about what, it, you know, you, you talk to people who have tried to make a go at it or have made a go at it and you ask them, what were the obstacles? They often come back to, I mean, almost universally come back to the regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. And one I heard, I heard five times in the last two weeks is the requirement for a sprinkler system. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm, I'm either took this old building or I want to take this old building in this uh, neighborhood in decline. I want to fix it up and I have dreams for a floral shop or I have dreams for a restaurant or I have dreams for what, whatever it is, mm-hmm. commercial undertaking. And the uh, the bureaucracy comes out and says, "Great, uh, you have to put in a sprinkler system. You know, uh, one hundred twenty thousand, one hundred fifty thousand, one hundred eighty thousand, and they just walk away. Like that's you know that's the ante for entry. Yeah. And it it just it occurred to me that like this is we're not we're from a practical standpoint we're we're not going to win that one. You know, like those people won." The people who demand those things won. And, and I, I tried to point out in the article how ridiculous it is. I mean, you can't have a corner store because they need to put in a sprinkler system. So what do you have to do? You have to get in your car and drive uh, somewhere else. You know, how many people a year die from commercial fires? You know, around 700. How many people die from auto crashes? Well, over 30,000. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, uh, leaning so heavily on... Huh. You know, you can't build here because we're worried about a commercial fire, you know, leaning so far in that direction has had some some bad impacts. Maybe if we can get fewer people having to drive out of their neighborhood, you know, the net result would be better for public health. We're never going to win that argument because there's no lobbying groups for people looking to fix dilapidated structures in poor neighborhoods. There are lobbying groups for you know, fire unions and building officials and sprinkler system salespeople and all the people who benefit from the current relationship. So what I tried to do is lay out a way that as a city, you could go about working within these rules and still get something done. And I've seen, I I feel like I need to get the city's permission (laughs) to actually name them on the podcast. There's a city I'm working with that basically went to their building officials and said, uh, Hey, uh, you guys want your pensions paid? Yeah. You want to continue to be employed? Yeah. Well, look around. Like the place is in decline. We got to fix that. And so if you're going to go out and, and be, you know, uh, ruthless thugs enforcing the building code, 
uh, that's never going to happen. So we got to figure out like a way to keep people safe, um, a way to do your job well, um, but yet a way to help things get off the ground and work. And so I, I suggested one in the article today, and I, I don't know if you have a reaction to it or not, if that uh, seems like a slippery slope to you or maybe too far out on a limb. But, you know, I, I basically said, get your place started and then we'll work on compliance issues, you know? Yeah, I think this sounds like a fair system. I don't have too much experience in the field of like construction or anything, but it sounds like a reasonable system to me. And there are plenty of checks and balances in place where uh, something egregiously dangerous would net, would not be allowed to happen in a building. Well, a lot of the pla- a couple of the places that I was in in the last week where they, you know, the sprinkler system was an issue. These were little boxes of a place, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're not talking, you're talking about Jimmy's pizza size place. I mean, like little, you know, uh, maybe 800, 1,000, 1,200 square feet. Yeah. Um, if there's a fire in a place like that, I mean, you're, you're talking like a concrete box, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a fire in there, having a sprinkler system would help. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to argue that it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. But having two doors, you know, like a door in the front and a door in the back. Yeah. It's hard to imagine like a fire short of an, you know, a gas explosion that blows up the building. It's, it's hard to imagine a fire in a place like that that would result in humans dying. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's a small building. You can get out the front of the back if unless people run back in and try to be heroic and save things like people can get out. Mm-hmm. Right. Why would we tell a building like that? You need a hundred thousand dollar sprinkler system to 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 open up. Yeah. You know, the the building's not worth 100000 in itself. Right, that's an insurmountable like, amount of money for a small business. It's an insurmountable amount of, of money. So you've put whole swaths of America, places that are struggling, out of business for no good reason. And that's why we only get Papa John's and Pizza Hut. That's why we get Dunkin' Donuts and not the little corner donut shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so here's here's, I mean, my proposal with the sprinkler system was quite simple. Go ahead and start your business. We're going to go out and make sure that, you know, you've got two exits. The roof's not going to fall in on people. Um, but we're not going to worry about, you know, all the little things like is, is this outlet supposed to be six inches more this way? We're not going to do that. We're going to, you get things started. We'll give you a provisional, you know, approval. And then we're going to go out six months later and, and look and say, okay, you, you need a sprinkler system for this building. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your revenue? You know, and, and let's take and dedicate 3%, 5%. I suggested 5% in the article. I don't know what the percent is, but let's, let's, let's dedicate a percent of your revenue towards a sprinkler system. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll, we'll have a, a nonprofit escrow account you can pay into. It's not going to get sucked into the city's budget. So you're not paying the city, but there'll be money there set aside for your compliance with this, you know, overarching thing. And you pay a little bit of your revenue each month into it. And if it takes six months, if it takes six years, if it takes 50 years for you to save up enough money to put in this sprinkler system, we will, you know, not say we're not complying with it. We just have like a different process for complying with it mm-hmm. than maybe what uh, the, 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 the standard building official would think you should do. So here's our process and we're doing it and they're going to have a sprinkler system. It just might take a while. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like that is... I feel like that is consistent with the values that we say we have as Americans, where, again, going back to, uh, you know, 
the, um, the, the Bhutanese in, in Akron, you can start with nothing and end up with something if you're willing to work hard at it. Mm-hmm. And we've taken that out of that. That's, that's, that's not an option for most people today. We need to make it an option again. Yeah. And thinking about that example, I mean, if we're talking about a small business in a downtown, that building without that business owner is probably sitting empty and could just as easily be a fire hazard because, you know, some dumb person decides to go like smoke their cigarettes in there. So exactly. (laughs) My whole point about being comfortable is this. If you talk to professional staff for cities and I, I, I was one of them. I mean, I, I use myself in this article to point out that I am comfortable, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm not the, the critique that I have here is also a critique of, of my past practice. Um, if you're comfortable, it's very easy for you to look at the situation as one where, yeah, at some point, Dunkin' Donuts will come in. At some point, you know, Papa John's will come in. We just need the right incentive package, the right big mega project to get things going. And then you look at that and you say, there's success right there. It, it happens. See, um, I can go to the next community and see where they did it. And they got the Jimmy John's or they got the subway or whatever, because those places come in and have like ways of complying with those things. They have the resources. You know, we've pointed out many times, if you want to open a a Dunkin' Donut shop, you've got to have a half million dollar net worth. You've got to have a $250,000 liquid net worth. Um, You've got to have cash just lying around. Um, That's not something most people have, especially in these, uh, you know, neighborhoods in decline. So if you're comfortable, it's easy to see a path to success that starts with you doing a mega project uh, you giving out tax subsidies as a city mm-hmm. and then, you know, the big players in the corporate world coming in and responding mm-hmm. to that. And that feels very comfortable. Um, if you're willing to be uncomfortable and actually go out and walk around and experience places, what you'll see is that we can do these things a lot differently, a lot more quickly and, and help a lot more people, and a lot more neighborhoods. And actually, from a city standpoint, keep our cities from going broke. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about here. Um, but it's going to require us to uh, to become a little less comfortable. Right. Uh, I think we should break because I know you have a call in about 10 minutes. Um, but yeah. this has been a good conversation. And I also wanted to just thank our people that joined us last week as members and as renewing members. There's a huge list. It's too long to My list goodness. out this week, but thank you to everyone who is supporting Strong Towns. It means a lot and it enables everything that we do. You know, as as we as I travel around the country and I'm able to say like, look, we're approaching 2000 members. I hope we get to 2000 by the end of the yeah. year. Um it's it's one of these things where a lot of nonprofit organizations, a lot of advocacy groups uh, depend on revenue streams that are not, uh, you know, internal the way we do. And, and I, I can't like, I can't explain to people the great strength that it gives our organization to be able to say, we have, you know, a million readers. We have uh, 2000 of them that have chosen to support us for no other reason than they want to see this message uh, shared and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, in the phase of strong towns that we're entering in, that is such a huge advantage. So yes, thank you to all of our members. And if you're on the fence and you're thinking about becoming one, uh, boy, in the next three months, uh, as we get to the end of the year, we could really use you uh, on the team. So strongtowns.org, become a member. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great week. 
We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.